0: Thank you, Anna, and thank you for inviting me to chair this session. I always enjoy doing the PhD section, so I'm really happy to hear four fantastic papers today. And we're going to dive right in with Aideen Herron, who has a master's degree in architecture from Edinburgh University and was awarded, as I understand it, uh, the Rachel McCrory Award for Excellence in, conversa- in conversa- Conversation Research. Sorry and the master's degree then in urban building conversation from UCD. Uh, Recently, she's been a PhD student at the UCD School of Architecture, Planning, and Environmental Policy. And uh, Aideen is today presenting on Surveying the Empire, Terrestrial and Astronomical Measurement Systems. So I'm just handing over to Aideen. Great. Okay. so uh,
1: yeah, as Freda said, my name is Aideen Heron, and I'm a second year. PhD candidate at the School of Architecture. My presentation today is Surveying the Empire, Terrestrial and Astronomical Measurement Systems. So I'll start with just a bit of my broader research. My thesis title is Designing the Astronomy Trail Research, Modelling and Tourism Strategies for Scientific Sites. My research begins began in March 2019 and this slide shows my general research plan. This research has two main topics of concern. The first is architectural and designed landscape research into historic scientific sites and the second is the creation of a digital model to inform state decision making regarding heritage sites. So I'm currently in the first phase of historic research. One of the primary focuses in this project is Dunsink Observatory. Dunsink is owned by the Office of Public Works and is run by Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. It is shown here highlighted in red on the top left of the picture. A case study of Dunsink Observatory will become a model for the Office of Public Works sites for historic and scientific significance. Here's a closer satellite image of the observatory and its cartilage today. Some key features are marked, including the main observatory building at A. This presentation demonstrates my current methods in placing Dunsink in a historical, transnational scientific context. This requires sound historic research into the structure of science in the British Empire, focusing on the use and reason for establishment of colonial observatories in the 17th to 19th centuries. In the short presentation, I will include two colonial observatories, Dunsink, and Madras Observatory in India, comparing them to the prime observatory of the British Empire, the Royal Greenwich Observatory. Dunsink Observatory was founded in 1785, following the death of Professor Francis Andrews of Trinity College, Dublin. From 1792 until 1921, the Andrews Professor carried the title Royal Astronomer of Ireland by Royal Warrant. Dunsink is the oldest scientific institution in Ireland. Henry Usher, the first director of Dunsink, spent some time visiting the Royal Greenwich Observatory in London in 1790 in order to better understand its methods of construction and see what could be replicated or improved upon for Dunsink. Though both observatories were built as scientific institutions, they were built for different reasons. Dunsink's reason for establishment are more speculative than that of its English neighbour. Dunsink's astronomers were required to make regular observations of the heavenly bodies and of the sun, moon and planets and to reduce these observations in relation to a meridian. The meridian is an imaginary line that is drawn from the North Pole to the South Pole on a map of the world. It is arbitrary and can be placed anywhere as a line from which to base all calculations. It matters in astronomy as time is defined by the determination at the instant at which a star crosses the local celestial meridian. Greenwich, on the other hand was solely commissioned to determine the places of the stars to aid in the search for longitude. It was established in 1675 in order to find longitude on earth and at sea. To better secure the delivery of both goods and people, sailors needed to know their whereabouts in the open sea, and ships had struggled to accurately plot their position, meaning voyages could take much longer than expected and could prove more dangerous than anticipated. Crews knew their latitude, their position from north to south in relation to the sun, but not their longitude, their position from east to west. At the beginning of the 18th century, military and trade voyages were occurring more frequently to further the reaches of the globe and at greater financial cost, and it became imperative that sea voyages be made quicker and safer to avoid fatal error, as shown in this slide. Human lives were not the only thing at risk. The infamous British East India Company, with tax-collecting right and a large army, was sending between 10 and 15 ships a year to India by 1710, and it did not want to lose them. In 1714, an ACT department announced a scheme intended to encourage innovators to solve the problem of finding longitude at sea. The Board of Longitude administered prizes for those who could demonstrate a working device or method. Crucial to the development of surveying was the concept of time and how it could be measured. It is possible to determine how far east or west of a given location one is if the local time on land is known as it can be compared with local time on board the ship. So, two methods emerged to be able to tell time at sea, either by astronomical means using the lunar position, as shown here, or by creating an accurate clock that could be brought on sea voyages. The lunar method essentially uses the moon as a celestial clock, an instrument known as the octant. The moon is similar to hands on a clock moving against the stars, which are like numbers on a dial. This method was Made possible by the work of Tobias Mayer and his lunar tables. His main interest was land mapping, marking an instance where the two scientific methods of astronomy and land surveying encouraged innovation in one another. The accurate determination of longitude was crucial for terrestrial mapping and he created new lunar and solar tables to improve his work. Neville Maskelyne, the Astronomer Royal at the Royal Greenwich Observatory at the time, used Mayer's tables and he eventually released the British Mariner's Guide, which was an explanation of how to use the lunar distance method. Now astronomers could map the moon's position and predict its movements, eventually creating a national almanac that allowed vessels to accurately plot their longitude. The overlap of the scientific branches of astronomical and terrestrial surveying has been found throughout the centuries. From as early as ancient Egypt, surveying devices were used to map the land and the stars. Now the British Empire would employ these skills in competing with its fiercest rival, France, who was also attempting to gather an overseas empire in the 17th and 18th centuries. From the first attempt of the plantation of Ireland in the early 1600s, the British imperial expansion was a well-practiced foreign policy. This Imperial Federation League map was published at the time of the Colonial and Indian Exhibition in 1886 and was a showcase for the wealth and industrial development of the British Empire. It shows the infrastructure of empire represented by trade and by the lines connecting major ports of call. With Britain's domestic observatory having helped master navigation of the seas, British colonial observatories could also be used as both foreign symbols of the empire in a foreign land and scientifically essential in consolidating that power through the terrestrial survey of the land on which they sat. Using British colonial observatories to create pockets of institutional power was instigated throughout the empire. Land surveyors use astronomy and stellar positions to measure land and to determine positions of natural and man-made objects on the land surface. The rule in cartography is that surveys and consequently maps are orientated towards the north, necessitating the surveyor to use astronomy and stellar measurements by characterising the longitude and latitude of the land point in question. In India in 1757, the British East India Company became the imperial authority and the need was felt for an accurate map of the country in order to exploit its resources. Ruby and Burrell, an assistant of the Astronomer Royal at the Royal Greenwich Observatory at the time, urged the company to conduct a systematic survey of the country and suggested the establishment of an observatory. In 1792, the East India Company completed the construction of Madras Observatory in what is now Chennai, which was the first of the modern observatories in Asia. The Madras Observatory had its origins in a private observatory set up by William Petrie in 1786, but it was later converted under the direction of East India Company director Michael Tapping. He was also a British surveyor tasked with mapping the shoreline of southern India. He argued that an observatory was crucial to his task, since astronomy was the parent and nurse of navigation. But the site was also a tool of colonial rule, a means of showing that Britain was now the dominant power in South Asia. As Topping insisted, astronomy held the key to a rich and extensive empire. In addition, Madras Observatory held a number of the East India's companies surveying and astronomical instruments. The establishment of an observatory in late 18th century Madras enabled surveying of not only the Madras region, but also much of the remainder of the subcontinent. Fanning out from Madras Observatory, British surveyors used it as a fixed location from which they could calculate the rest of the country from 1802 to 1876. This was the first step in assessing the value of the lands for tax purposes and bringing the region under direct British control. Alongside other massive British projects of scientific knowledge collection, such as James Cook's expedition to the Pacific, the Madras Observatory held the new kind of science, serving the needs of a global empire and imposing its sway on subject peoples. Historians have highlighted the important role that scientific knowledge and the ideas, institutions and systems associated with it played in consolidating European colonial endeavours and identity formation in settler societies in a transnational manner. I'm intending to delve further into the connections, relations and scientific structures in relation to surveying for the following observatories and their countries. My research into the significance of colonial observatories hopes to illustrate the symbiotic relationship between science and empire in this period, demonstrating the overlap between political and strategic considerations and purely scientific endeavors. As astronomers and observers trained their sights and their telescopes on the heavens, they also helped to draw diverse regions of the Earth beneath closer together by surveying and using methods which required a keen understanding of astronomy. And that's me.
0: Thank you so much, <laughs> and um, I just meant to say when, when, I, when we're approaching one minute left, I'm going to raise my hand. So just for the speakers to be aware, I forgot to say it before. And uh, we're just moving over to our uh, second speaker And before we go for um, a discussion. And the second speaker in this uh, session is Feng Wang, who earned her bachelor's degree in architecture, architecture from Tongji University in Shanghai in 2014 and an MA in Architecture on Contemporary Projects from the Universitat Politecnica de Catalunya in 2016 before she then returned back to her uh, alma mater, Tonji University, where she uh, graduated with another MA in Architectural History and Theory a year later Currently, she's a PhD candidate at the UCD School of Architecture and Cultural Policy, where she works on a project entitled Industrializing Modern Consumption, Market Building, and Department Stores in Chinese Cities between 1930 and 50." And I believe uh, she's going to explore the transnational notion and encounters within this uh, project today. So I'm just passing over to Sheng Feng. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Rita. I'm uh, just sharing my... Screen. And during the 1890s, Kang Youwei, a Chinese radical reformer of the late Qing dynasty, visited Shanghai and Hong Kong and was greatly impressed by what he saw in the same two cities. Historian William Chen argues that not even Kang's perspicacious observations could have prepared him for the fact that for the next hundred years, similar artifacts of Western material and consumer culture would do more to transform China's modernization than all of the West's political and military interventions put together. In my PhD project, Institutionalizing Modern Consumption, Market Buildings and Department Stores in Chinese Cities, 1930s to 1950s, I explore how the commercial building types that facilitate urban prosperity in the capitalist West modernized Chinese everyday life from the Republican era to the communist regime. This research includes case studies on four architecture projects in interwar shanghai British colonial Hong Kong, and socialist Beijing. It demonstrates that the trade infrastructure embedded in multi-layered social networks not only housed the exchange of commodities, but also resulted in the introduction of new architecture types and the approach to functional planning. By 1930, Shanghai was the world's fifth largest city, a cosmopolitan trade entrepot, and a gateway to mainland China. On the spectacular Nanjing Road in the international settlement, the establishment of the four great companies, as you can see their building towers here, optimized the enthusiastic uh, reception of modern marketing by Chinese merchants who run business in Australia but were excluded by the racist um, government policy. Choi Chong, um, the founder of the 1936 Dashing department store, appreciated the efficiency and power of the large scale retailers in Sydney and outspokenly adopted the Western model. Unlike its presence on Nanjing Road, his building, as you can see here, um, was designed by native architects Guan Chu and Yang The active design under American influence highlighted the Chinese-ness. For example, the unrealized honored pagoda above the top floor stood in sharp contrast to the overall simplistic appearance. This reveals that the business community tied their identity to the nation state as the government put social pressure on individuals and encouraged and forced them to consume nationalism. Striving to assert leadership in Shanghai, the Shanghai, uh, the Chinese national government established a new civic center, as you can see here, uh, closer to the modern, um, to the future modern harbor, to shift the urban core away from the international settlement and the French concession. So Nanjing Road, as I just mentioned before, locates around here. In 1936. And the Ministry of Industry launched the Shanghai Fish Market Project as part of a highly centralized national economic plan. The modern building designed by Xu Jingzhi, an American-trained Chinese architect, exhibited greater uh, avant-garde ambition than the commercial high-rises, which embraced laissez-faire capitalism. During the post cities in Japan, she got inspired by the utilitarian market facilities but his final creation was imbued with abstract industrial aesthetics. The well-equipped trading venue replaced the central old Riverside marketplace that had been responsible for one-third of national fish sales, and was controlled by a p- private capital overseen by the French Municipal Council. Chinese nationalist government propaganda justifies a new institution as a cooperative undertaking to promote modernization. Something ended by the 1937 Sino-Japanese War, the prosperity of the Shanghai fish market was short-lived. Britain took over Hong Kong for commercial purposes rather than territorial gain in the mid 19th century, when the place could hardly be called a city. In the following decades, the colonial governor's council became the administrative body that carried out urban construction to provide stability for trade. Replacing a brick edifice in Italian um, in, inspired classicism with a reinforced concrete structure with striped glass walls, the central market reconstructed in 1939 was one of the few modernist buildings erected in Hong Kong in the pre-war period. Its designer was A. W. Hodges, a rebel architect working in the Public Works Department. Supervised by the Public Health Department, the project represented the implementation of century bureaucracy across the British Empire. A regulatory agent imposed on ordinary lives. It functioned as a clean machine offering light and air and serving to standardize commercial activities. The reconstruction proved for the Canola government to be a highly remunerative investment. Meanwhile, the hygienic ideas embodied in the new, in new structure, the architecture design inspired by Shanghai presidents and, and the installation of the latest equipment supported by both local and foreign contractors, advertised the supposed benefits of colonial rule and combined the idea of modern hills with industrial um, amenities. When the Communist Party came into power in 1949, it implemented the first five-year plan following the Soviet example. The Beijing Department Store was established in 1956 during the period of socialist transformation and industrial and commerce. In line with policy of state monopoly over um, purchases and sales, the first state-sponsored department store launched a nationwide mobilization to achieve technical support and an adequate supply of goods. The massive building designed by American-trained and Chinese actor Yang Yang Tingbao and his colleagues depicted a vision of of prosperity, which motivated participation in the construction of a new country. Bridging between the producers and and the consumers, the project accessible and appealing to the people also became a show window, displaying an idealized view of everyday life in China in search of international socialist modernity. Material culture under communist rule created a spectacle of political-sized commodity. Associated within a transnational circulation of ideals, technology, and regulatory uh, frameworks, these four architecture projects completed in the 1930s and 50s participated integrally um, in a broader social transformation. My research explores the formation of sales environment in modern Chinese cities. They have profound contributions to the economy of China, currently is the largest trained nation in the world.
0: Thank you. All right, thank you, you. Sheinfei. Uh, I'm inviting
3: questions. Um, Oh, okay, it's going up. Uh. So I have um, a question for Adine. First of all, I'd like to thank both of you for these papers. Um, so Adine, the I think you could give a little bit more nuance about uh, the British Empire in India since 1757. Really, all they control is Mumbai, Madras, and uh, Bengal. Uh, it's not until the middle of the 19th century that the British Empire really reaches its fullest extent in India. But I also wondered if you could possibly compare the observatory in Madras with the ones that the Maharaja of Jaipur erects in Jaipur and Delhi in the early 18th century. They look incredibly different and they are not, uh, they don't really adhere to 18th century European science but they are very interesting formally, and they have a huge impact in modernist architecture in India in the, in the 20th century. So I'm not, I'm not saying that this is something that you should spend pages and pages on, but it might be interesting to look at them uh, to compare what indigenous and important science in India looked like in this period. And they were mostly for astrological predictions rather than for the control of space. But the control of space in in Jaipur, in, in Jaipur which is a new city in the 1720s, is pretty interesting as well. Aireen, you want to react?
1: <laughs> <laughs> That'll be really interesting, actually. I haven't read too much about um, the, the, the observatories that were there previous to colonial ones, except that I know that um, they have a really good connection with each other, and they were very democratic in their methods, maybe more so compared to the colonial observatory. So I'd, I, sp- I find that really interesting, especially how they impacted um, modernist architecture in India. I'd love to read more about that. That sounds great.
3: Send, send me an email, and I'll send you some references.
1: <laughs> okay, oh, great. Thank you very much.
3: OK. Anna was first.
0: Anna, you have to unmute yourself. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to both speakers for two very fascinating papers and projects, actually. Um, I have a question for each of you. So uh, my, my first one is to Aideen. Actually, it's not really a question. It's more a suggestion um, that you should perhaps, you know, complement your analysis by uh, in, maybe you're already doing this. I don't know. Uh, by uh, looking at tennis, uh, Dennis Cosgrove's uh, fantastic book *Apollo's Eye*, a cartographic genealogy of the Earth in the Western imagination, I, I, are you aware of this? Oh, Dennis, Cosgrove, Dennis Cosgrove is, is, is one of the greatest um, geographers ever, I would say, and *Apollo's Eye* is a master—it's a masterpiece—and it's important for your project because. Uh, you are looking at the function of, the political function of, the observatories and how this um, connects, interconnects, with um, the Empire. And Cosgrove looks at what he calls the Apollonian gaze, which is actually something that goes back to antiquity and informs the Western imagination, uh, in terms of imagining a unified global space. And he tracks this from antiquity, really, right through the 19th century into the uh, 21st century, when we actually then, in the 20th century, when we can actually look back at the Earth, yeah, from the Moon and and uh, um, uh, uh, space. And he, he shows how how this is central to um, uh, the establishment of a mastering view. So you have the two perspectives that are complementary. You have the the perspective up, yeah, which is uh, mathematically uh, important in order uh, to establish the, the global geographical network that enables calculations, etc. And then you have the poetically imbued, if you wish, vision of a, of a global unity. So that is really a strong recommendation because I think it's such a central intervention in the debate on geography. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. I'll definitely have a look at it. Yeah, so uh, Dennis Cosgrove, really uh, one of the great, great, great geographers. And that book in particular, Apollo's Eye, yeah. Um, He died recently, unfortunately, I have to say. And then my second comment is really more for uh, uh, Zheng Feng, in the sense that I was um, surprised by the last image that you showed of these these shoppers inside the shopping mall or whatever it was, because they they looked very Western. When was that photograph taken? Um, And was it used by the Communist Party after 1949? It, It kind of, I would find that really very surprising because this consumerist imaginary that we saw in that image seems to run counter to the political um program of the communist party and and the need actually to feed the nation at that time i live at yeah. that
2: and the, the photo on the right side i showed was taken in uh at the end of the fift- 1950s i think oh. so it's almost at the same time like mm-hmm. when the building was was built and um one thing i am interested about uh, this building is that it's a a state-sponsored sponsor department store, but uh, the whole idea of department store was originated from uh, the capitalist West. So actually the, the designer who made that building um, first designed a project in Shanghai. So um, they kind of related in the design skills, kind of like this. So you see the similar, like kind of uh, the feeling of the space is, is similar, but um, the people who actually um, and run them and also how they operate the business is not the same so yeah that's this this kind of tension
5: there
0: thank you okay i believe mike is next on my list yes
5: thanks very much and um, re- really good uh, talks and uh, uh, apologies if if you can't hear me too well. I can hear uh, the speakers very well. It was fine. Um, just a question to um, uh, Aideen, and that's about the uh, um, <clears throat> if you like the, the non-imperial involvement of of Britain in in, in astronomy abroad. Um, uh, certainly, the East India Company and, and later the the, uh, the British government, um, <clears throat> I guess, had a lot of support for. Uh, Astronomy abroad, but I don't think they were the only ones. Um, um, Oxford University uh, um, had connections with uh, observatories abroad, and and latterly, you know, in in the early part of the last century, they relocated uh, the Radcliffe Telescope to South Africa. So it wasn't all the government. That's my point. And, and the other point is that uh, I, I think you're quite right. You know the linkage there with um, with the empire is is very close in in, in promoting um, science and astronomy in particular uh, for navigation purposes. But I don't think they were the only ones. Um, the 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 East um, uh, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC. Um, one of their founders was an astronomer. Uh, so you know. Um, I mean, they, they, they used to say that they weren't entirely set up for trade and money and so on. Uh, I don't know whether that's true, but, but certainly they, they, they had a real interest in, 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 in astronomy, perhaps for navigational purposes. But, but as I say, one of their founders <coughs> was an astronomer. So they were, I guess, <coughs> uh, competing, <coughs> sorry, competing with the British and the French uh, in overseas territories at the time.
6: I have to unmute myself, thank you. Um, I have a question for uh, Wang Jiangfeng. I uh, thought that was fascinating, especially because obviously a lot of these buildings uh, no longer exist or were destroyed in the war. Um, So I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about how unique Shanghai was in terms of uh, Republican-era buildings, because obviously Nanjing was the Republican capital. And I'm just wondering, was this commercial function of Shanghai really how important was was that commercial aspect in the selection of architects, the design of the buildings that were to go there and the presence of the international settlement just a bit further south. I just wanted to see if you could tell us a bit more about yeah what made Shanghai unique in terms of its architecture compared to other places in China.
4: Uh,
2: thank you Jenny I, I think it's a very big question <laughs> about <laughs> why Shanghai is so important like commercial industry and mm-hmm. um, uh, first of all I think it's a um, it's because uh, Shanghai was like the f- one of the first uh, trade ports in in China's history since um, the, the middle of the nineteenth century and um, then they established the, the international settlement and the French concession there. So one um, that was in the 1930s, there are actually three municipal units in Shanghai. So the, the two, like the international settlement, mainly dominated by the British and also the American and, or, and the French concession, they have their municipal council there. And also another part um, by the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. So it creates very kind of unique like, uh, political situation at that time period. And during um, the Nanjing period, we see uh, from 1927, uh, Nanjing decades from 1927 to 1937, it's kind of a stable period for the Chinese government for their development. So at this time, they tried to, um, assert their leadership in Shanghai because um, actually the, um, the, the foreign force um, mainly controlled the, the commerce at that time period. So as I mentioned before, they established a new like uh, civic center in the north part and to try to build, um, to establish their own authority. And the reason why they built a fish market um, at that part um, is because like Shanghai is the distribution center, although it's not the place where the fish was catched, it's a distribution center, like t- for all the fish st- in the mainland China. So, um, it's and and also, um, I mean, it has certain uh, kind of like, like ge- geographic reasons for, for, for that uh, city and also, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think partly answered your
0: question. Yeah. Any other questions for the moment? Okay. Then I have a question for Sheng Feng as well. And I was just wondering, um, because it was a really inter- It's a really interesting topic. And I was just wondering how these architectural buildings and these concepts of department stores like this really commercial, were perceived like more from the bottom up by the, by the locals, like was there, were the different phases and how they adjusted it? Where, how were they used in the beginning? How, are you looking into that at all? Or is this something you you look more from an urban planning and architectural kind of side solely? Mm. Uh,
2: I try actually, I try to see um, how the people actually use the space. Uh, but the main issue is that um, there are not like so many records about mm-hmm. the, the local people um, like and then the main sources for me is from the municipal archives and also some newspapers yeah. so um yeah so the, the I think the, the main issue is about the sources. Okay. I, I'd like I'd like to see like if there are some reports about how the space is used, especially on the newspapers, but mm. um from from what I see not so many. So
0: okay. Mm-hmm. So I suppose there are not not like um I don't know I, I could, uh, documents like diaries or something in archives where people talk about it in their, yeah, in their letters. I didn't find yeah. Them. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's probably like too much of a scope then to dive into that. Mm-hmm. You're for that. Mm-hmm. All right thank you. thank you. Any last questions? Thank you. Thank you everybody for two great
4: well thanks for two great papers.
0: So it is uh, with great pleasure that I introduce our next speaker Bianca Cataldi who graduated in Modern Literature at the Università degli Studi di Bari, that's her hometown, I believe, in 2014, where she then also pursued an MA in Modern Philology. Currently, she's a PhD candidate and Italian tutor at the UCD School of Languages, Cultures and Linguistics, where she explores in her research the impact of literature and utopia on industrialized Italy and Europe during the 20th century. Uh, Today, Bianca is presenting on Adriano Olivetti's relationship to the working class. So, I'm handing over to Bianca. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and
7: thank you, Britta. Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay, perfect. So, uh, as Britta was saying, my research project focuses on the relationship between utopia and labor, and especially through the work of the 20th century Italian entrepreneur, Adriano Olivetti, who probably you, are, you know already because he's the most important typewriters producer in Italy. And is also the first one in Italy that actually started a project about a computer. So the first model of a computer in Italy was produced at Olivetti Inc. So that's why it's really important for our story. But it's also the one that started a debate on labor and on working class conditions. So the title of my project is "Utopian Labor and the Impact of European Utopian Thought on Italian Industrial Literature." So basically, my argument is that we wouldn't have an industrial literature in Italy during the 20th century without the influence of Adriano Livetti's Utopia. So we wouldn't actually have books and novels about factories and life in factories without Olivetti. And what strengthens this uh, argument is that actually all the writers that published novels about working factories were working at Olivetti. So it's really interesting because there is a kind of testimonial intent in their writing. So, But what is this utopia that I'm talking about? So this utopia can be summarized in two key points. The first one is to overcome worker salination in factory and to make labor not a torment but a spiritual strength. And the second point is to overcome the logic of political parties to establish a system of communities, as we will see farther on. So throughout the first half of the 20th century, Olivetti has been encouraging the debate surrounding the concepts of labor and fair working conditions and alienation, and not only in Italy, but also abroad. So the transnational nature of his discourse on labor is already evident in Olivetti's cultural background. And indeed, during the 1920s, he traveled to America in order to study the Ford Enterprise and its way of organizing working factories because he knew that there was something wrong in the Italian way of organizing work. So when he came back to Italy, he was convinced that although it was not the right time to overcome Taylorism, it was necessary to reduce the working hours in order for the workers to rest and consequently to produce more in their less stressful and alienating working hours. And the debate on alienation, particularly encouraged by Italian writers and intellectuals like Ottiero Tieri and Paolo Volponi during the 1950s, is also influenced by the French Christian philosopher Simone Weil, who experienced working factory in person and denounced the inhuman amount of work and the total absence of camaraderie between workers and the risk that human beings that are workers may be reduced to machines, since their only aim is to produce goods. And so the reference here is obviously to Marx's theory of alienation. And we know that Marx had actually thought that there were several kinds of alienation for workers. So the alienation of the worker from the product and the alienation from the aims of production and the alienation from the means of production and etc. So basically the worker doesn't produce something that is going to use in first person, so he's producing for someone else. But actually, he doesn't know who he, what is the aim of this production, because he doesn't own the means of production. And this is one of the causes of alienation. So Olivetti is convinced that the discourse on labor has to go beyond the idea of nation, as it is particularly evident through his collection of essays, Città dell'Uomo, which translated in English will be City of Man. And the concept itself, of the city of man transcends the idea of towns and borders. So from both a geographical and a political point of view and put the focus on the idea of man as a community. And that is the problem actually. So what is the community? According to Livetti, the problem of unfair working condition and alienation is not merely an Italian problem. It's not a French problem and so on but it has to be addressed at the level of politics, so beyond the boundaries of nation and according to the idea of a global community. And the idea of a global community concerned with human welfare and healthy working condition was considered utopian, of course, by Olivetti's contemporaries, since the community in itself will reduce the control of political parties and ultimately of the state nation itself, According to the entrepreneur, at the core of each country should be not the idea of nation, but the idea of community. So what is the community? It is a territorial unity whose borders are not geographically specified. So in order to form a community, a territory should fulfill two requirements, having a homogeneous culture and being economically independent. So ideally, it is in the core of the community that Olivetti wanted the real debate on labor to take place and not in the single and separate nations. And what is really interesting to me is to notice that one of the conditions to have a community is culture. The other one is economy, of course. So you have to be able to produce and to sustain yourself. But that's not really connected to the idea of Italy or France or Great Britain. So it's more to do with with culture and that's particularly interesting for Italy because we know that Italy as a concept has always been debated about because we have had two wars and obviously not all Italy really feels Italian because we have the problem with Trieste at the border and we have the problem with Trentino Alto Adige, which actually is like Austria. So the problem is that we don't have really an idea of nation. And when we talk about labor, Olivetti was convinced that we needed to talk about it without any border. And he actually tried to do that. So he wrote letters to American newspapers. He tried to be in contact with France and Great Britain, and not always he was actually listened to, and especially in Italy because it was too difficult to imagine the idea of community in a, in a nation that actually was completely ruled by political parties and also by two political parties in particular, and one of them was the Christian party at his ears, and the other one was the communist party. So even though Olivetti's utopia is still a utopia, because that's the definition of the name, you can't reach something that is a utopia, It's really interesting to analyze this kind of transnational idea because Olivetti was actually the first one to really think of a community which goes beyond the borders. So my interest in my research was mainly on the relationship with utopia and labor. So how utopia influenced the idea of labor in Italy. But it's also in this idea of transnationalizing culture. And so to try to think of Italy not as Italy but as something in, in a continuously uh, dialogue with other countries. So that's it, basically. I hope I'm in time.
5: You have
0: plenty of time left. <laughs> Thank you, Bianca. <laughs> that was lovely. Um, okay, and I'm uh, moving right on to Yan Li Chi, uh, who earned her uh, a bachelor's degree in museology from Shanxi Normal University, and I do hope I pronounced this correctly. Um, and graduated in 2015 with a master's degree in history from UCD. Uh, she's currently a fourth year PhD candidate at the UCD School of History. And her project examines the introduction of British Railway to China. Uh, her presentation today is entitled uh, Translating the Railways into Mandarin. Um, and I'm passing right on Li.
8: So uh, good morning, everyone. I would like to thank the Humanity Institute for arranging this symposium and inviting us PhD students to share our research related to the transnational approach. And I'm currently working on a dissertation about the exchange of knowledge, idea and technology between Britain and China in the 19th century. I'm focusing on the case studies concerning the arrival of railways in China within time frame from 1835 to 1895. It is the first attempt to examine the process of railways introduc- introduction into China from the perspective of ideological exchange. The transnational approach offers methodological inspiration to this research. The transnational approach seeks to break out of nation-state or singular nation-state as category of analysis. It offers a new perspective to write about the history of railways in China, which has long been written by the nationalist approach. The nationalist approach applied the problematic, dominant, resistant binary in the narrative. It emphasized the imposing role of the Western powers And the resisting role of the Chinese in the issue of the railways. Also, it viewed the Western powers and the Chinese as two monolithic entities. Hence, the various actors who play the nuanced role in the shaping of history of, in the in shaping the history of railways in China are ignored. As Patricia Calvin uh, famously defined it, the transnational approach is first and foremost about the people. It seeks to identify the dynamic networks and connections that cross and through national borders. Transnational approach inspires my investigation into five groups the foreign missionaries, merchants, diplomats, and engineers, and the Chinese travelers to the West. These groups forged links through which the knowledge, idea, and technology of railways were introduced and took shape in China. And my talk today is about a missionary who transplanted knowledge of railway into China. Not until the end of 19th century did China enter into the railway age. It is almost half of century lag behind Britain in which railway were developed first. However, it was not late when the Chinese learn learn about the first modern intercity passenger railway between Liverpool and Manchester, opened in 1830. An article written in Chinese about this brown line appeared in 1835 in a journal titled The East-West Monthly Magazine, published by a Prussian missionary, Carl Frederick August Gutzloff. Gutzloff was trained by the Dutch Missionary Society and was firstly dispatched to the Dutch East Indies he came to the shore of China in 1831 as an independent missionary. His activity in China was sponsored by foreign merchants, mainly the British. They valued Gutzloff's language skill. He could read and write in official Chinese and spoke fluently in several dialects. For the same reason, Gutzloff was offered an interpreter post by the British authority and played a significant role in the first opium war fought between britain and china he was com- he was a complicated figure who came to china with bible as well as the as well as weapons before the war one significant weapon was the intellectual artillery a phrase used in the declaration of the society for the diffusion of useful knowledge in china founded in 1844 by foreign community in Canton and Macau. The founders felt that the spread of Western knowledge among the Chinese would blast off the closed door of China and defeat Chinese ethnocentrism. Gutloff was a principal member of the society, but before that, he had taken pioneering actions in 1833 and published the first Chinese magazine in Canton. In the same magazine, Gutloff published an article entitled the huo zheng che literally meant the fire steam vehicle. Introducing about the railways. In Chinese, che was general designation for vehicle with wheels in all forms. The Huozheng combination came from the term for the steam engine also coined by And um, When considering the missionaries' introduction of the railways into China, one should know that the steam technology developed in the West was utterly unfamiliar to most Chinese. Historian Xianqun Wang points out that the lack of underlying technology development, same as those in the West, limited the ability of the Chinese to grasp the mechanism of steam technology. It was therefore a significant task for the missionaries to explain the idea of the railway. Good love is an interesting example. In writing the fire steam vehicle article, Gutzloff tried to establish a bond with his Chinese readers by employing two Chinese characters as the narrators which to lend credence to the account about the foreign lands. The article began with a story, a fictional Chinese named Li Zhu sails on an English ship back to China. He meets a friend, another hypothetical Chinese named Chen Cheng, and they have a conversation about England. In the conversation, Gutzloff tailors a comparison of British social system with China's. Li Zhu mentioned that, Britain allowed foreigner to enter Chang, travel around the whole country, even the palace and the court in the capital were permitted to visitors. Chen reacted with suspicion and then questioned about how the British could defend their country against potential enemies. It was because, as Li Zhu answered that, the defense of the enemy and the welcoming of the guests was both the law of Britain, and through the interaction with the foreigner, it would be instructive to enhance techniques and develop civilization of the inhabitant. Chen Cheng was amazed by such liberality in Britain and felt ashamed by the by the Chinese law and regulation that is against contact with the foreigners at the time. The fire steam vehicle or the railway is then introduced as a proof for the benefit of liberality of the British system. Li Zhu stressed that, in comparison to the railway, the booming scene of London, where, as he described, hundreds of ships brewing and imported product come from all over the world, and the powerful steamship, which could sell much quicker than the Chinese ships are nothing but normal. He says, The fire steam vehicle within one shi ran for 90 li as quick as bird flying without using any horses or oxen. It it flies and ran as what it may. One shi for 90 li means two hours for 32 miles or 51 kilometers. The Chinese units of time and distance rather than the English hours and miles are used in the text. The description is rough but sufficient to tell the rapidity of the railways. Then Li Zhu gave a brief account of the evolution of the Liverpool and Manchester railway from horse drawn to steam power mode, which showed the advanced appeal of the fire steam vehicle in comparison to the animal power. By sketching the planning, construction, and operation of the railway, the article leaves an impression that the British society is wealthy and efficient. At the end of the article, a noble idea of connecting Britain and China by wealth was put forward. Through Li Zhu's mouth, Goodlove expressed the wish, if such a land route could be built from Britain to China, the transportation between the two countries could be conducted as quickly as two months time, and there would be no more suffering of sea sailing. And a European who has such skillful techniques and craftsmanship would like to build a route which to establish the, brother, the brotherhood of all men within the four seas. Here, Gutzloff employed a well-known quotation from the Confucian classics, which is shown on the screen. The quotation indicates that Gutzloff appealed to classical Chinese thinking to friend European people and their superior technology. How should China interact with the European? A brotherhood-like relationship should be established is his answer. Through his Chinese characters' conversation, Gutzloff hints that an older country like China should accept sincere suggestion from a younger brother nation, such as Britain. The brotherly exchange of the two Chinese interlocutors underscores the scene of parity and mutuality that the Westerners should be invited to share. As we can see, the transnational approach offers a lens to look closer on the figure like Gutzloff, who makes a more nuanced effort in his drive to introduce the railway into China. And then, one might then one might think. Thanks for listening.
0: Okay, if we have none at the moment. I'm gonna start with a, a question for uh, Yan Li, and it is a really interesting topic I find, and um, I know very little about it. I'm just fascinated by this uh character, Gutzlauf, you you mentioned there. And I was wondering what was the readership of the magazines um, he published this article in, or several articles you mentioned. And then I was wondering, did he publish it under his own name and how was it perceived? If if because obviously there's this 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 intent to highlight the the advancement of the of the of the western technology there how was it perceived by the people and how was he perceived from the chinese side in this instance thank you
8: uh, thanks brita uh, i would like to answer the first question you asked and um, so the readership is basically uh the chinese merchants uh in the uh, it was only the one uh, single pot that was open to the foreign uh merchants and uh, residents in China at the time that it's Canton, and also uh, most uh, foreigners resided at Macau. So, uh, so Goods Love magazine uh, was published uh, for the Chinese uh, who would have opportunity to interact with the foreigner and who really, who, who want to mo- know more about the Western country. So that means uh, most most of the readership would be the Chinese merchants, rather than uh, Chinese officials or Chinese intellectuals, and um, so for the second question, uh Goodlove published the uh, the magazines uh, under a name he uh, he he took he used as a Chinese lover. So actually, he tried to make himself make the magazines more. Um, so he 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 had a he was attentive to his Chinese readers and he want to make popular his magazine and he want to attract more readership so this is why he took he used the Chinese characters in telling his story and and also because he want to introduce the advanced technology but he want he also want the Chinese to understand what this technology is so he would just use the he will frame the idea uh, in the Chinese culture contest rather than just give it out the whole things in the western uh culture contest.
0: I hope I answered the question <laughs> yes you did <laughs> thank you yeah. I, think.
5: I believe I have a question from Mike for bianca uh yes uh, th- thank you again, peter for allowing me um i don't know uh, <laughs> um ask more than one question on this and, and that is the uh, uh Bianca do you do you often find um people asking you whether um whether um Olivetti was interested in transnationalism or multinationalism um I um <clears throat> I I just in case people confuse the two terms, as I understand it, uh, uh, the difference is that uh, in 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 transnationalism you don't have uh, you know uh, an executive concentrated in in one place. It it, it genuinely is transnational. Whereas uh, our modern concept of the multinational is that it's a, it, it involves it, you know it's 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 a company spread over the world, but it is. Consolidated or it is headquartered in, in in one place and I'm, I'm just wondering uh is is there anything in in the um, you know in the modern world which militates against transnationalism uh, whereas what we have now is multinationalism because th- there are advantages in you know in in uh, consolidating in one place in, in say having your headquarters in one place and registering for tax somewhere else and then uh, employing cheap labor somewhere else to make your product and, and so on. In other words uh, Olivetti's idea of genuine transnationalism and genuine cooperation like that is, is, is impossible to do in the modern world.
7: Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Mike. That's why he was considered utopian. I mean, while he was still alive, he was convinced that that was not a utopia at all. Like he he didn't define himself as a utopian, of course, because he was generally convinced that that was possible. But of course, his contemporaries and even now more than ever, they are convinced that there was a utopia. But the reason, the real reason, you know, I didn't have time to explain all this thing behind this idea of transnationalism, but is a Christian reason. So he has this idea of everybody you know they are all brothers so they have to share you know there is not really a border and that was his idea and there is a letter when he says like we are all Christian and we are all socialist because we are Christian and that was utopian of course because even if Italy is a Catholic country that doesn't mean that we are all actually Christian like in the way he intended. So he was generally transnational, a transnational person, but he couldn't be believed by people. And he found a lot of obstacles like bureaucracy, you know, and that kind of things. He also talked with the Pope, you know, but there was nothing to do because there were borders there that couldn't be crossed. It was not good from, um, how can I say, from an entrepreneurial point of view, it was not really smart, according to his contemporaries and to people right now. Now it will be, like I don't say impossible, but utopian to have that kind of approach.
4: Okay, Anna? Okay, two comments, one for Bianca and one for Yan Li. Thanks very much to both of you for your uh, excellent presentations. It's been a great panel today. It was a great panel. We had great panels yesterday, but it's a great continuation of our conference. So thanks for that. Um, I'm I'm interested in Olivetti's uh, understanding of culture um, because clearly as a socialist with Christian leanings or a Christian foundation he must have had a Um, a strong notion of participation in culture so I'm assuming that he didn't define culture along the um, you know the highbrow uh, lines of uh, great opera and and what have you but more in terms of communitarian notion of culture did he have any kind of policies to enable his workers to um, create and participate in culture and my question to Yan Li put them out. I don't much about uh, Gutzlaw, but I know that he came from a very modest background. I think he was the son of a saddler in Pomerania in in, in, um, eastern Germany, which is now Poland. Um, And he made his way up. It's a kind of a really uh, colorful career that he had. He was married three times. He was multilingual. He spoke several languages, not just Mandarin, but Thai and Cambodian. He, he compiled a dictionary of Cambodian and all sorts of things. But I think he was also involved in the opium war. Uh, and his career I, seems to have disintegrated later on in his life, even though he was very wealthy. Can you comment a bit on... on on this, this darker side of him in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, the missionary effort, the investment in the opium war. Thank you. Okay, I think we start
7: with Bianca. Sorry, yeah. I, yeah, sorry. No, I was taking notes and I forgot. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, thank you, Anna, because that's a very great question and you actually touched upon a very crucial point here because Olivetti yeah, absolutely he didn't believe in that kind of eyebrow culture because he wanted everybody to participate in it and participation is really the key word here because he established all kind of recreational centers and cultural centers so all around the factories there were libraries there were schools for children so in this, I'm talking about Ivrea in particular, which is you know, in the north of Italy. And that was the main factory. And so it created school for children. So when the workers went to factory, the children were there and they could go to school and they were close to their parents. And then there were other events after working hours. So when they left, they could actually go there. And there is a track of this in the novels that I analyze in my project because all of them they talk about going to the library and studying and you know the the thing is that actually Olivetti was not a great reader either like he didn't like to read books which is crazy you know when i found out about that i was a bit but he liked to study to improve himself and to improve his ideas but he never really read novels or poetry it was not that kind of man you know but he wanted people to share his their ideas with him and to be to participate in culture. So yeah, that's absolutely a positive answer. He he did something to encourage that. Yeah.
0: Yan Lee?:
8: Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Ann. Uh, yeah, your question is very. Um, Fascinating, to be honest. Uh, I always think about Goudslev had a um, multiple identity uh, in terms of his uh, uh, where where he's from and who he worked for later uh, in his later life. And uh, he was always an ambitious person. And he um, so I I maybe I just uh, talk about his darker side because that would be a big story about Goods Love. Uh <laughs> so that won't be able to answer in uh, within the time limit so about the darker side uh, i think the most famous part for his darker side is he was he worked with uh, he worked closely with the opium merchants in china and in, uh, in the coast of china in um, the mid 1830s so at that time because he was an independent missionary he uh he didn't have uh funding from any of the missionary societies so he had to find a uh like he had to find a financial sources so this is why he worked for the uh opium merchants but uh, at the same time he actually uh, shared the same interests as these um opium merchants he wanted to um he wanted to open China. He wanted to, uh, want to change the law of China at the time. It uh, forbids the Chinese people to contact with the foreigners. So he he used to disguise himself as the picture sh- uh, I showed earlier. He used to disguise himself as a Chinese and to dispatch the pamphlets about uh, about the Western country, uh, the knowledge about the Western country uh, in the coast of China. Uh, this is all illegal uh, conducts, but he had to rely on the opium merchants to do to, to did it, because uh, there's no way that he could just go in, go north to, uh, or sell north to dispatch those um, uh, materials to the Chinese directly and so another uh another uh the later life of his uh of goodlo he worked uh, uh so he worked for the british authority in uh the colon- colonial uh, authority in hong kong uh but he basically he worked as an interpreter rather than uh administration's role and so i think he's uh, quite complicated, complete Uh, complicated figures in this perspective. Yeah. I hope I answer your question.
6: (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. Do we have any more questions? Can I just jump in and ask a quick yeah. question? Sorry, my okay. video uh, camera isn't to be working anymore. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, I, I have uh, just a, a quick kind of comment and question for uh, Yan Li. Uh, uh, um, I just I was struck by um, this idea of, of Christian transnationalism uh, that we were talking about earlier. How it was it was a sort of utopian force trying to to connect different places and people, uh, but underlying that there's all sorts of racial power dynamics and, and cultural power dynamics going on. I think that's that's really uh, the case in, in your paper too. I just wondered, it's really interesting that you're trying you're trying to write a, a transnational history of a rail, of, of railways which becomes so so embedded in the national discourse or, or in China so i really i really like this approach um, but i was just wondering i guess my question is yeah how, how are you trying to change the way in which we see railways in 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 Chinese history. In a bit, there's a big question, um, and 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 what can this transnational kind of approach do? Uh, because it it is really fascinating, and and maybe uh, thinking about like post 1911 you know, the, the, the people, the international people who, who, who are involved in building railways, I, I just, I thought maybe you could put this into sort of a slightly longer term perspective. And then very, very quickly, you might want to look at um, Henrietta Harrison's writing a new book about the role of intermediaries in Chinese history. And I think that could be very interesting if it comes out quite soon for your, for your, um, uh, uh, your work.
8: Uh, thanks Jennifer um, so uh to be honest I think uh, your question is really difficult to answer at the moment and this is what I uh, think about about my uh, project as well uh how t- how the transnational approach changed the uh, established historiography uh, of this history of railways in China so I think uh, why I choose the time frame from eighteen thirty from the May, mid meet uh, 1830 to uh to to 1895 that is the end of the first sino uh, japanese war uh, because i um i think i i would like to just focus on the introduction of the railway technology uh, uh, sorry the te- railway in terms of te- um knowledge knowledge idea and technology so uh just uh, i foc- i want to focus on this um um, ideological exchange rather than uh, the later political issue, so this is why I use this time frame. and So if we talk about the political issue or the diplomatic issues uh, uh, about the well waste, uh, that would be uh, a lot written with the national uh, approach rather than the transnational approach
6: yeah no it's just interesting i'm wondering how you can get away from nationalism but it's interesting it's a very interesting way to do it yeah yeah absolutely thanks thanks
0: Uh, okay uh i think i close this panel for now and
4: so thanks again to all the chairs to all the presenters and to all the attendees Um, If you are not on our email list, please send your email to humanities at ucd.ie to be put on our uh, uh, Humanities Institute email list so that you're informed about all forthcoming events in the coming months. Thanks again and bye-bye if I don't see you
0: again before September. Have a good summer and all the best from me.